Hey, welcome everybody. This is Joe McKendrick, uh, analyst with RT Insights, and I'm very pleased to be joined in today's podcast on continuous intelligence by David Lithicum. And this is David, this is such an incredible honor to have you here. I mean, we could go over your resume, but that's going to take up the entire time of the podcast. Uh, yeah, you've, I'm old. You've done, <laughs> but you've done so many impressive things. Uh, currently, you're Chief Cloud Strategy Officer with Deloitte, uh, right? Among your many other uh, activities. Yeah, I've been there for four years, and am I honored to be on your on uh, your podcast? I mean, I've been following you in Forbes and over the years. How long have we even known each other? Probably twenty five years. At this is, it going, point. is that far? Twenty five years. Yeah, we're, we're, days of client I think server we were ta- and- first talking about cloud. Uh, no, I knew you in the SOA days. So those the were, SOA. you know, probably 2002 timeframe when I was, uh, you know, CTO of Grand Central and, you know, trying to get the SOA stuff and the cloud stuff off the ground and no one cared. So <laughs> and it was like a, a few of us who were writing and speaking about it. And you were one of the few, at least one of the few who made sense. <laughs> Turned out not Did to I? be okay. crazy. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I've always... Uh, and I've always viewed you as someone who's, who's kind of has a foot uh, ahead of everybody else in the marketplace and from an analyst point of view. So I'm glad to well, be here. That's an honor hearing that from you, Dave. And, and uh, you know, uh, you've always been leading the charge back in the service-oriented architecture days. You moved in the cloud and you've been uh, the thought leader, uh, the, th- the go-to thought leader in terms of cloud. And, and you're continuing that work into this digital era, um, edge, cloud, uh, digital transformation. I mean, you're the go-to guy. You know, I, I say to people, uh, you know, there's there's lithium, that that powerful energy source that's powering every <laughs> device across the planet, but there's also an, an even more powerful energy source, and that's lithium. Yeah, okay. it sounds like a lot of people pronounce my name lithium, and I think it's a psychotropic drug too. So it's uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. <laughs> yeah, so there's one side versus the other. No, I, I appreciate that. I I enjoy working this business and you know trying to stay ahead of everybody, and so it's uh. It's, it's fun doing it because, you know, just watching the technology evolve, you know, people fear change. I fear not changing. So mm-hmm. always look at the de- next generation where the technology is going. What's the value going to be for the enterprises? You know, what kind of IP intelligence do we need to create around leveraging this technology? And it's a challenge. And I love it. And I guess you do, too, based on the amount of things that you write and speak about. It's a great market. Uh, what I enjoy about it is the, the optimism, you know, that there's a. Uh, you know, the feeling that we can really change the world for the better. Um, and you're seeing it across the globe in every continent. Technology has really been a force for change, for ch- improving people's lives, not only their work lives, but their personal lives, uh, society. I, you know, tech gets its knocks, of course, but um, I think it's it's really been a force of good, a powerful force. The companies in the next generation are all be around technology. You know, if you look at what we have today, we have, you know, ride-sharing companies. They don't own a single car. We have, uh, you know, uh, home sharing companies, they own a single piece of real estate. And I think that's going to go on. People are able to weaponize technology to kind of take things to the next level. And if you're unwilling to do that and take some risks, I think a lot of them are going to fall by the wayside. I mean, I wrote an article a couple of years ago called The Brand Apocalypse, and which is unusual for me because it was more business oriented, you know, in the spirit of Harvard Business Aru and things like that. But I kind of talked about the number of companies that are whistling past the graveyard in terms of disruptors coming up behind them you know, where it's going to be a ride sharing services and you're a taxi cab service in a larger town. And I think they can be a disruptor into themselves and certainly at their size and mass and the amount of resources they're able to spend. They just have to take technology 
and use it in the correct way. And by the way, you need to start now. This is something you can't suddenly realize that someone's going to eat your lunch when you're trying to do a digital transformation in the into whatever it is, so you're able to weaponize your existing business. And I think the proactive thinking about this right now is what's gonna save a lot of these brands from just kind of falling by the wayside. We're gonna see brands that have been around for 200 years uh, go away. They're not gonna get go out of business, but we, we're gonna see them subsumed in other brands and some of the smaller players are gonna you know, pick them up. And the reality, all you need to do is provide a better product and better customer experience, You know, like we can do with electric cars these days and some of the new engines in the marketplace. And you're going to end up growing in the market rapidly and displacing, you know, some of the existing players that are a bit more bloated than they should be and aren't leveraging technology to the degree they should be. And the barriers to entry are so low these days. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone I, sitting in an office can uh, or, or their home can uh, create something new for the world. Yeah. Right. Back in the startup days, it was $10 million to get, you know, systems in a data center you know, and up and running. And, you know, now it's a thousand dollars a month. And by the way, you don't need office space because everybody's going to work out of their laptops, wherever they want to mm -hmm. exist. And you can create these virtual companies that are, you know, 20 times more effective, you know, than what we had to do back in the brick and mortar days. It's exciting because the levels of playing field allows people to punch above their weight. And it really allows people to live their ambition out with, in, out any hindrances. You can't, you, you don't have to go out there and get huge amounts of, um, of funding, you know, to move these things, you can you can start it in an organic way, and I'm seeing these things all the time, and they just make me smile. Just make, just the fact of the matter is that we still have that entrepreneurial shift out there. We still have the innovative nature. People are surprising us all the time, and what they can do with the technology, and it's it's going to be an amazing time in the next 20 years. I just hope I'm around for it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about something that. Um, you know, everybody, uh, as, as we move into this tech world, um, continuous intelligence, the need to be, not only understand what's going on in your markets, but also understand what's going on internally and within your organization. Um, how, is, how important is it these days to have a, a, a system or a, 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 a DNA, if you will, of continuous intelligent, intelligence, letting you know what's going on across your enterprise and, you know, and why now, if that's the case? Well, it's going to be the engine that's really going to get to the problems that we just brought up. And so in other words, if you have continuous intelligence, I'm able to see every piece of information that's uh, analyzed in a certain way that's going to be consumable into core processes and I'm able to leverage in real time. So, you know, back in the day, we had data warehousing uh, and we had big honking piles of database and, you know, it took a, took a day to run a report, you know, against those things, things like that. That's non-actionable data. That's non-actionable intelligence. So continuous intelligence is about externalizing all of that information, not only the information, but putting it in the right analytical context. In other words, bringing out the, removing the information you don't need and, and only the information you do need remains or able to analyze that stuff in a matter of nanoseconds and then put that back in the business. And so we can deal with supply chains. We can deal with you know, customer order entry systems. We can deal with a lot of the things that are frustrating people today in dealing with a business with almost perfect information. You know, back in the 90s, you know, we wrote about EAI and certainly their service-oriented architecture. And we had this notion of this, this latency, the zero latency enterprise, where an enterprise could have access to any information at any time for any reason and any kind of an analytical way and brought to some sort of an intelligent angle and embed those things in these core processes. We have this event-driven business, which is completely 100% automated. And now we have the capability of doing it. We have, number one, we're able to leverage cloud and other commodity-based processing, which is able to bring this intelligence to us. 
We have the continuous intelligence platforms that are out there that, that know how we're going to move this information and how we're going to maintain it on the fly. And then we have people who have the vision enough to plug these into certain processes within the organization. So we can have a zero inventory, inventory supply chain, even those are very difficult to do. We can manufacture something at a 20% less cost. We can provide a customer experience at far superior uh, to any of our competitors out there. And so this is the weapon we were talking about that people need to take to war uh, to become a disruptor instead of being disrupted. And I noticed that uh, services such as Uber, for example, um, you know right away where your car is. You know, if your car is five minutes away or two minutes away, we're coming around the corner. Um, you're notified that and, and you know that right away. I mean, that's a, that's an, it's an amazing uh, capability to have. Yeah, and it's, it's, it goes to the customer experience. I mean, we like to be in control. Um, so I always find I order from folks that are able to tell me exactly where my package is, uh, who's going to deliver it, what time it's going to show up. Uh, you know, even the, you know, even the driver that's going to be delivering it. And it doesn't matter if it's food delivery service or it's, and we expect these sorts of automation where they didn't exist 10 years ago. We were okay with, you know, calling a cab and having it show up sometime within the next two hours or never show up, but not the ability to figure out who accepted the ride, who's monitoring where they are, how they're going to get to you, all these sorts of things, be able to communicate with them as ongoing. And that kind of raises the experience up. I'm involved. I'm bought into those experiences. It's not frustrating me. It's basically working for me. Now do the same thing with the pharmaceutical industry, the same thing with the automobile manufacturing industry, the same thing with banks and finance. And we kind of get where things are going. And so the more you have this intelligence that's embedded into these processes, the more you can determine the current states and the more you can communicate those states back to the human beings, whether it's a customer, an executive, or someone who's operating the business, the better that business is going to run. And more importantly, the more attractive that business is going to be uh, to customers who basically vote with their dollars every day. We talked about the big disruption. I think this is what, what's going to be. It's going to be those who get this, who are able to weaponize continuous intelligence and other technologies to digitally enable their enterprise to become more real-time in nature, and those that don't. And the customers, including myself and yourself and everybody else who's, who's voting with their dollars every day is going to choose to deal with the more innovative, the more automated, and the more in, no, in the know companies is able to do this stuff in real time. Again, exciting. It, it is. It is. And, and does this intersect, does this dovetail with what's going on internally in the enterprise as well? The ability to know what's going on with your systems, if there's a problems, bottlenecks, or, or glitches and um, uh, your you know, your, 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 the way the data is moving or uh, uh, things happening within your company. Um, yeah, I'm you know, smiling because I get complaints from CEOs and, uh, and, and CFOs all the time that they have no idea what's occurring within the business and that they get reports about once a month, which will tell them disturbing stuff that they really needed to know 30 days ago and they can't act upon it. It's kind of too late to make happen. So, the externalization, we've had this notion for a long time. My first job out of college, almost 60 years old, was, was, was as a DSS, Decision Support Application Analyst, which was getting into executive information systems to push information to people so they can make better decisions. Well, this does that and, and does it more because, number one, not only does it push information to the executives in the organization and people who are operating, the operations managers, the staffers, things like that, people who are working on loading docs, but it's able to make decisions in real time on behalf of those humans so they don't have to monitor everything. You, we're, we're, we're people, we're not gonna look at a computer screen or look at our phones, you know, seven by 24. So having this continuous intelligence, these automated processes to really kind of take these things on your behalf 
then report back to you what occurred is ultimately what the goal is here. One of the worst things we can do when we try to do this in the data warehousing world is externalize things to humans and say, well, human, you have to make this change. You have to go fix this thing if a problem occurred, you know, versus the self-healing processes and the self-correcting processes and the ability for the business to actually run in something that's almost approaching 100% automated state. It's never going to be 100% automated. Human being, humans are going to have to be involved. But how we get them involved and how we leverage them strategically for what humans do, and that's being innovative and creative, is going to be a bit more uh, purposeful you know, than it was in the past. And I think that's, uh, that's what businesses need to look at right now. So in other words, we're not trying to automate human beings out of it. We're trying to put human beings into what they do well, and it's not looking at numbers and graphs that are flying across the screen and going off and figuring out how to fix things. It's something else to be able to determine why this thing is occurring, what the root cause problem is, how it can be fixed, attempting a fix, reporting the fix back to a human, even reporting it as part of a larger report to what kind of inefficiencies are moving forward and the ability to deal with maintenance issues and different layers of abstraction up to the executives in the company that have to deal with different layers of information. But all they're doing is basically monitoring things, you know, very much like we do with our car. We have to steal our cars, but it keeps its own temperature. It's able to, uh, you know, know its location. It can keep its braking systems, you know, in in the way, and it can troubleshoot some of these things, you know, ongoing. The more we remove the humans out of this, and we're certainly moving to automated driving coming up, uh, the better off we're going to be, and the better we can be humans and not be bothered with the minutia. And I think that's what the executives are looking for right now. They want to be informed, but they want to have something that's able to fix the smaller, more tactical problem. That's probably ninety percent of what they deal with out there. The ten percent they can deal with, we can externalize it to a human. But the ninety percent of the problems, we have automated systems that are able to deal with it much better than the humans can and do so in real time and, and interact those in both those. And uh, AI automation, uh, those great tools we have, um, they should they need to be working alongside humans then. And uh, we still need to keep a human in the loop at some point. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I'm always, it's funny when I build AI systems, I always, I'm always under impressed by AI systems because I grew up with 2000, oh, was it 2001 A Space Odyssey? Where yeah, yeah. now, you can yeah, oh, yeah. with them. You know, now we have chatbots and things like that. I, I won't say the A word that is not to be mentioned because it will go off ten, uh, a foot away from my, my computer. But the reality is, is that AI-based systems are more beneficial for more tactical things in nature. And so we just talked about that, the ability to find you know, a network problem and the ability to come up with the root cause of what that problem is likely based on the learning database of a million events that it may be sharing within its infrastructure to figure out what the problem is and then ability to enact a fix. But, you know, at least for the short term, us humans kind of need to look over the over the uh, uh, shoulders of the AI systems to make sure they're doing the right things. And by the way, the more we do that, the smarter they become. They're organically smart. So they start off dumb. Like I said, I'm not I'm always never impressed with them. When I start using them. Uh, and but ultimately, the cool thing is they become smarter and smarter by collecting the training data. And so they know more than I'm able to know based on my experience, because they're able to take take their experience, the AI engines experience, along with the experience of maybe a million other AI engines that are gathering the same information and then make decisions with almost perfect information to make the right decisions that humans can't do. And, and by the way, that's stepping up to diagnosing a disease, it's stepping up into treatment, that's stepping up into um, you know, driving, you know, self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, you know, all these things we have coming down the line. These things work now. Uh, 
and they work now because the AI engines are becoming better and better at what they do. And we're just understanding that the more stimulus it's provided to them, longer term vision of AI, the smarter it's going to be. So we can't put an AI system out there for a month and go, well, I'm making better decisions than it does. Well, it's learning. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, basically infinite at that point and has to grow its knowledge and grow its data over time and then learn from the data. That's why they call it training data. And that information can come in, not just from the databases, but come in from the fields now, from the IoT devices. Uh, whether you're dealing with maintenance in a factory, you're dealing with retail, you know, retail sales, you know, both uh, on-premise, both uh, brick and mortar and, and online. And it's just going to be a much more powerful way that people are going to be dependent on. So it, it's funny, people show up with their AI engines to implement them for strategic purposes. In other words, to make a lot of core decisions, I guess they have the how uh, thing in their mind, like I did when I first got into it. And, and by the way, you know, I'm almost 60 years old. That was my first job also. You know, out of college. It was an AI analyst in building list-based systems. Uh, we've come a long way. But the ability to leverage them for tactical capabilities, the ability to embed them on edge-based systems, the ability to put them near to the data so instantaneous decisions can be made uh, that aren't necessarily complex under themselves, but they're better to be made by an AI system that's distributed, that's close to the data, you know, than they are by a human being looking at it and you know making a decision and typically mistakes as part of those decisions. And I imagine the the systems, the hardware, uh, uh, Moore's law probably comes to play. Uh, the ability to deploy AI closer to edge systems, uh, uh, we're able to run, actually have these devices support. I mean, to some extent, our 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 mobile phones support AI, right? Yeah, and it's um, you know there's there's nothing there's nowhere where AI can you know can't run. I mean, it runs on my wristwatch now, and if you have a you know, a, a digital watch, I'm not going to name any, I'm not going to promote any brands, but the thing is, if you have a digital watch, you can have AI capabilities that runs on the edge-based systems. AI systems are running within thermostats right now, smaller versions of it that are able to make decisions, you know, based on your movement throughout the house and their ability to look at the outside temperature and they're looking at the cost of power and making tactical decisions that we typically wouldn't make because we don't have time to make them, which can save you you know, hundreds of dollars a month on your on your bill. Well, same thing with your automobiles and same thing with these systems. They're pervasive. Uh, they're embedded. Uh, they don't cost much. Most there's a lot of uh, open source you know AI systems out there that are excellent moving forward. But the reality is that it, AI has to come along with your ability to configure it correctly and your ability to point it at the right problem that's looking to solve. Your ability to use it in the right way, and that's where it has the value. So at the end, it's not the fact we're building a how. Uh, where it's one centralized super brain that's able to, you know, uh, become self-aware in a few years and kill us all. But the ability to put AI systems all over the place and have them basically focused on their tactical task, interacting one to another. But that's really where the power is. It's these smaller problems we're able to look to solve using AI technology, where 10 years ago, it was uneconomically viable for us to do that because we couldn't afford the processing power. Here now it is. I mean, some of the AI systems I was, you know, thinking about building you know, back when I first got out of college, and this is 1985 dollars, we're going to be, uh, you know, 20 million dollars just for initial business system. No one could afford that. Well, well now it's 20 dollars a month, if that, mm. and and so everybody can afford that. And that classic line from 2001, right? Uh, he, he might have been speaking to you, you know, Dave. I'm afraid, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Al, Al, Al was speaking to you at that time. <laughs> That's when Hal had emotions. I was a little concerned at that point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, great, great, uh, fascinating stuff. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't have a lot of time with this podcast. So I just want to wrap it up and, uh, you know, ask you for your advice, you know, your advice to, uh, to technology leaders, business leaders, those folks listening who, who want to move forward with continuous intelligence, you know, give them uh, 
share something about your wisdom, please. Yeah, the time to move toward this stuff is now. Um, and if you're a business that doesn't have a significant investment in leveraging this technology, as well as most of the digital enablement technology out there, clouds, uh, IoT, edge-based computing, things like that, it's always going to be a different answer as to what you need to do, but you need to start asking those questions now. My bigger concern is not that people are going to fail by you know, over-trying, the fact they're just going to fail by never trying. And I'm seeing a lot of organizations out there that are sitting on a dime and waiting for something to happen before they think it's the right opportunity to throw their hat in the ring and, and, and move the thing forward. If you're doing that, you're, you're going to end up just kind of falling by the wayside. And so if you're a leader in an organization, you're thinking that not proactively, how to, web, how to leverage this technology as a true, true, true force multiplier in the business and take your business to the next level, just not going to happen for you. And so um, start thinking about how to make these moves or else they're going to make the moves for you. Mm -hmm. And as you said earlier, uh, you know, the, uh, it's, it, you can't just sit on your brand and uh, um, nope. accept the status quo. You know, it's, things are changing nope. too fast. No, nope. whether you're an analyst or a writer or a thought leader or stuff like that, you got to keep it. You got to keep at it and keep punching away. And businesses are none the same. It's going to be changing world. It's not this one transformation. That's one and done. It's ongoing continuous improvement and hopefully continuous improvement using continuous intelligence. Uh, I see that. Mm -hmm. CI equals CI. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, David Lithicum, thank you very much for joining us for today's podcast. Uh, this has been very enlightening and uh, we really appreciate you having on. It's been a real honor. Anytime, Joe. Ask me back. Thank you very much for having me. Okay.